Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. It's impossible to miss the events in the United States following the murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May. However you class them, a riot, an uprising, mass demonstrations or anything else, the anger of black America is absolutely palpable. As we go to air, thousands have been arrested and many injured. Hundreds of millions of dollars of properties have been destroyed or looted. The National Guard has been called out to some cities and multiple police stations have been burnt down. A curfew has been imposed in many states and the protests keep spreading. It is unquestionably a turning point in US and global history. Although events are unfolding, this week on Accent of Women, we look at what's happening so far, with the promise of updates in coming episodes. My guest today is Robin Wansley Wallabar, and she starts this discussion by introducing herself. My name is Robin Wansley Wallabar. Um, I'm a current resident, and I honestly will say I'm originally from Chicago, but um, considering the uprising that has taken place in Minneapolis, I, I feel comfortable now uh, claiming this is my home. So I would say <laughs> Minneapolis is my current home right now. Um, and the organization that I've been doing, organizing around at least two um, in, in regards to the George Floyd um, Inspire Uprising has been with the Twin Cities uh, Democratic Socialists of America organization or other otherwise known as DSA. So on the 25th of May, George Floyd was killed. It sparked the uprising, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but right across the states based on the media reporting. Uh, Robin, tell us what happened. Yes, so George Floyd was going about living his life on May 25th um, and went into Cups Food, which is located it's a small business, um, small neighborhood business that's located right off of uh, 28th in Chicago. Um, and Mr. Floyd went in to purchase some things. Um, there's the narrative that um, when he went to pay for the items, uh, there was a counterfeit money exchanged. Um, and as a result, the store workers or store employees called the police. Um, but George, after that, was like, I, apparently, you know, the, the workers was like, this is fraudulent. George left, went to his car, uh, was chilling in his car. And then the police pulled up, asked him to get out of the car. And next thing you know, he's being pulled out of his car um, and forcefully placed on the ground. Mind you, the entire time he's not resisting arrest. He's cooperating um, and forced onto the ground. Uh, Chauvin, uh, the the officer um, who responded to the scene, um, ultimately places his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. Floyd responds saying several times for uh, several minutes saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Can you please get your your knee off my my neck? I can't breathe. I want my mom. And around 10 minutes minutes after this has happened, mind you, someone in the neighborhood, a young um, Black woman is filming this from across the street. 
and eventually Floyd goes unconscious um and the officer still has his knee on his neck um and then they eventually call the paramedics because at this time multiple folks are coming out from the community and surrounding and trying to see what is happening why are you essentially <laughs> having suffocating this man publicly um he's done nothing wrong um and long story short um the narrative that the police and elected officials put out was that george floyd died due to medical uh distress when it's very clear that most likely he died at the scene um at as a result of the direct force placed on his neck by the officer's knee um so those that's kind of the summary of the event i don't know if you want me to go into like what followed from that um but after that transpired and of course you have multiple people that's now circulating this video that details you know second by second george's life being taken away from him and then you have this report put out that says he died under medical distress and it's a complete contradiction and a con complete slap in the face to everyone that was there to folks who know that's not the case um, and immediately i want to say the following day several um institutional organizations like the naacp minneapolis the aclu uh the twin cities justice for jamar coalition uh which was formed after the also police induced murder of jamar clark back in 2015 um they all organized uh, a protest which is typical after incidents like these we had it with jamar we had it with philando castile and marcus golden and numerous others so they called to action a protest at the site of the murder um and the protest i mean it the the day started out beautifully you had hundreds and hundreds of folks coming out and mind you all of this is still happening under our COVID pandemic um so um it was marketed that we were trying to do a social distance um um protest but it, that that ended real quickly because numbers swelled up to ten thousand i mean twenty thousand total of folks who showed up which is amongst the largest protests i think ever around police brutal police brutality um in not only the state or the city but probably in the country alone um so we had twenty thousand folks show up and then we started at the site of the murder folks then marched down to um the third precinct police precinct um off of uh 27th and in lake street east lake street and that's the police uh, precinct where uh the officers that were involved with george floyd's uh, murder um worked directly um and as soon as you got there which it was beautiful to see um like by the time again like the numbers of the those who showed up drastically increased from the original site to by the time we got to um the the police precinct and people were coming from all areas like streets were blocked off and mind you this is a major traffic area um it was a lot of young black and brown folks like mostly young black folks and black men um 
folks immediately circled the police precinct and started chanting and was, <laughs> yeah, started chanting, um, demanding that those officers be charged and all those things. Um, and the protest went on throughout the, I mean, for a number of hours, but this is the issue right here. So <laughs> it went, I think the protest officially ended at seven o'clock. Folks were not ready to end <laughs> um, at seven o'clock. So folks essentially stayed out there and continued to occupy, occupy space. And in the process, things end up escalating justifiably uh, where folks decided <laughs> to uh, throw rocks at the police uh, windows, like some cars got turned over and this is all police property. And I should highlight all of these frustrations and angers uh, was initially directed at the police precinct, the third precinct, third <laughs> police precinct station. Um, so immediately, uh, of course, the cops, because our elected officials and our state officials have um, time and time again over the, the years invested millions of dollars into these uh, law enforcers' budgets um, that they've been able to purchase riot gear. So they 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 got geared up. They created parameters around the precinct, um, tried to create a barrier. And as a response, protesters actually create a barrier for themselves that there's uh, across the street from the precinct is a shopping plaza um, that has a Target, a Cub, some major uh, food and retail chains. Um, and they went and took shopping carts from there and forced their own uh, <laughs> parameters to protect themselves. Um, as the cops started throwing tear gas um, and, and shooting protesters, I mean, protesters and occupiers with rubber bullets. Um, and then in, in light of that happening, again, it, there's been this back and forth where things would calm down a bit. Um, <laughs> and then folks would start peacefully assembling. And then the police would go on the offense and again, shoot tear gas into peace, crowds of, uh, of peaceful protesters. And then as a response, the protesters respond um, with, okay, we're going to throw some rocks at your, your window. We're going to break the, the windshield on the police cars. Um, we're going to give you a glimpse <laughs> of the anger that we feel day to day as you, as all law officers, constantly circle in surveillance and police people in our communities um and you're given authority to do so by our elected leaders you're given authority to terrorize us to murder us without any consequence we're going to give you a glimpse just a glimpse of that and things and we can get into this later into the interview because i think even in this current moment this is something that i'm even unpacking pol politically because the political landscape of Minneapolis it, uh, since the uprising. Um, and I'm being very intentional right now in claiming language around uh, uprising. There's, again, I'm, there was a justifiable amount of um, occupiers, either well-intentioned or not, who then directed their frustrations towards the police precinct initially, and it rippled out. The way in which elected officials right now, in order to try to reinstate 
um, a system of, of law and order are framing it that there's outsiders and white supremacists that came into um, our peacefully assembled crowds and, and instigated looting of the stores all around the cities and things of that nature. And I'm still unpacking of that's not necessarily the case. Those, those initial days, people were justifiably angry because mind you, at this point, the officer who murdered George was not arrested. The county attorney, uh, Michael Freeman, um, publicly shared that he wasn't anticipating um, charging uh, Chauvin, Officer Chauvin, um, at that time. And it's like, what more do you need to, to arrest? At the bare minimum, arrest and charge uh, the officer. So none of that was happening in this moment. And this is getting out to the public. So yes, people spread that frustration all across the city. And it manifested in looting. It manifested in people occupying space um, and going toe-to-toe with officers. And let me say, unarmed pro- protesters, by the way, going toe-to-toe. All they had was rocks and the, the canisters, uh, tear gas canisters that were being shot back at them. Folks threw those back. Um, so, and milk to cleanse their faces um, of the tear gas. So it manifested in a variety of ways. Um, looting, fires were being started all across the city. Um, and again, for the several days, about two to three days, we've had that happen where, again, people go back to the precinct, um, peacefully assemble. People have tried to do um, different events there to try to calm things down. And young people, and this is something to be intentional about, of like, we have politically uh, a black leadership class uh, that has partnerships and allyships with our political leaders and are often used um, in times of crises as well as up unrest, civil unrest to go in and manage black people's frustration and anger because it makes the political class and the business class uneasy. It makes them uncomfortable that their property that their capital that their political um gains are under serious threat so we've had black leaders for instance al sharpton came in um on on tuesday following the first day of riot um and tried to implement some calmness um some different activities to deal with that that frustration and it's well intentioned because the the second night I get <clears throat> the riot got to a point where one one particular looter in in process of looting a store or a local pawn shop was killed by the owner. Um, so there was definitely well intention, some well intentions guiding these actions to try to calm things down and manage things, but it came without any analysis or any calls to actions to hold the folks who, who wreak violence on our lives daily, holding them accountable to do something about the police, to do something about the lived realities of racial and economic oppression in the city because Minneapolis is ranked fourth in the country as having the worst racial and economic disparities. We, we come in first before all the Southern states where you would think um, and this will be much more um, predominant. Um, so there was the 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 intentional effort for 
the black managerial class to come in and try to soothe things. Things continue. That occupations continue. The looting continued. Um, but all of this with the focus of no one was charged. Elected leaders was just worried about how to reinstate order. They weren't worried about what do I need to do to actually ensure equity and equitable funding is redirected into communities that have been divested in for centuries and decades or to reconcile that the funding that you have divested from these communities have historically went to police, uh, the police state that has done nothing but annihilate black life. Like none of this was being discussed. So now we're at what day five. It's hard. I honestly couldn't even keep track of the days, but we've had several days of, of looting. And then of course our, our mayor, and our uh, governor, our state governor, um, have forged uh, partnerships with our local military um, and, and have basically <laughs> brought in the National Guards as well as uh, surrounding um, law, in, uh, law enforcers from different counties and all across the state to try to reinsert control. Um, and to subdue the protesters that's out there right now. Like, like I mentioned right now, that's happening. Um, but what's also beautiful in these moments of like, yes, looting is happening. Small businesses have, have been destroyed in this process. We've have had hundreds and thousands of community members over the past two days come out and forge community defense committees. We have folks who's cleaning up daily um, the damage in the streets. Like right now, as part of DSA, one of our early responses was to establish a food relief uh, site because, again, the shopping plaza across the street from the precinct, um, all those stores were looted and then subsequently closed. So we realized working, cl working class families and, and residents were, would go without access to um, food um, at this point. So our, our call to action was like, let's establish a food relief site um, and get food to the people. That's how, how you could meet a need um, in the community at this, this crucial moment. And other groups have followed um, the same um, response all across the city. They're establishing food relief. People are doing clothes relief, um, making sure that the, the basic necessities that used to be provided by these large corporate chains like our communities are providing that right now on site. So it's been beautiful to see how our communities have also demonstrated that we don't need to rely on these systems of, uh, that govern us um, and in equitable ways, um, in ways that create more harm and create more exploitation. Like we have the ability to do that for our own communities. So I, I just want to uplift that too, that we've seen such a great deal of a great numbers of community uh, responding in such uh, also, you know, inspiring but tragic moment in our cities. So let me ask you, as socialists, well, firstly, what are the demands of the protesters? What are they calling for? And then, as socialists, how should we be intervening in the uprisings so that we actually support the comrades to achieve lasting change as opposed to an uprising that diminishes into a riot that eventually gets suppressed? 
So one, so one of the quick demands was um, arrest the officers involved. Um, uh, arrest, charge, and convict. Simple. That's like the first tier. Um, we got to one arrest of one of the four officers involved. Um, he was then charged with third degree murder, which is essentially a petty felony. He's not going to do any hard time for that. Um, instead of first degree murder. Um, so again, those are the demands have been half-assed already. Other demands has called for uh, the divest, complete divestment from the police department on both um, the city side, um, our elected leaders, you know, cease all contracts uh, with the police to perform public services. Um, we've also had calls for other public institutions like our schools, our, our public schools and public universities, our hospitals um, to divest from MPD. Um, some other uh, demands that has come up too through uh, Reclaim the Block has been around uh, redirecting the funds that goes to MPD um, into community-led and health-based uh, systems, which basically is like alternatives to policing. Programs that are alternative, if it's transformative justice programs, um, and also I think it's as as social as we would add, that's also just public infrastructure. Redirect that money back into public housing or housing in general. Redirect that into hospitals, uh, into our schools, which constantly face perpetual deficits and are always closing, mostly in black and brown communities. Direct the funds there. Those are the institutions that we know actually um, tend to our community's well-being um, and promote uh, manifestations of equity. Like, that's where we can go um, with those demands. Um, and as socialists, uh, we're also saying similar things. We need to implement uh, rent control with that. We need to make sure that, you know, the system of, of privatized housing and private ownership of land is, is challenged. Um, because through those systems, that requires a state of policing. Um, we're talking, and it's, there was, there's definitely overlap with, again, we need to socialize, essentially, uh, our communities and make sure we have socialized programming um, instead of diverting unnecessary, fund, not, not let me say unnecessary, instead of diverting any funding to the police. Um, and the way in which socialists needs to intervene, and I'll, I'll be quite frank, like as DSA, in this current moment, as of today, we just finally shift gears to figure out what politically should we be doing in this moment. Like we did a lot in the past several days of showing up to the actions, caring for folks who are being tear gassed, setting up mutual aid projects. But what is going to be needed in order to win any of these demands is to have a strong base of working class folks who are organized and disciplined to see that this is a long-term long-term movement. Um, and we also need to be considering what escalation looks like, which is why it's unfortunate that our labor movements are still attached to political institutions that do nothing for them and only preserve a status quo. Because ideally, at this moment, our union should be calling for general strikes. People should be doing walkouts. Like, <laughs> they should be demanding the, the withdrawal of labor 
in order to exercise the capital that they have to make some of these demands um, be adhered to on a state and, and municipal level. And that's the work that socialists, we, ha we have to do. We have to do what we did with the transit workers. We need to bring meets and bring uh, workers that are part of both unionized and unorganized workforces um, and, and work with them to develop this socialist analysis and bring them into this fight um, that is basically a fight against racialized capitalism. And we need to build those alliances because those are the folks who are going to go back to their labor leaders and say, yo, we can't keep doing this. We need to, again, be out in the community meeting working class people where they are, making sure we're being responsive to their immediate needs through mutual aid projects, but using that moment also to politicize working class people around how to also um, organize for the changes that they want to see. Um, so that's what we're in the process of figuring out how to do. Do we hold general assemblies at our mutual aid site that that basically gather demands from people on the ground. Um, it's like, oh, you want some diapers, but also what changes do you want to see? Um, it takes us working with and meeting working class people where they are in our communities. And second, we also need to get organized ourselves. Like, it's really messed up at this current moment. And I think this is representative across like the US. Um, the left is very fragmented and weak. And it shows in this particular moment in Minneapolis uh, why we've been able to have a variety of managerial classes come in and subdue um, sections of our uprising is because we don't have a united left of socialist groups, of working class folks, of unions who are actually organizing a base, a movement of workers and, and to say, no, we need a different reality. That was Robin Wansley Wallabar from the Democratic Socialists of America and based in Minneapolis, the epicentre of the current uprisings. In the coming days, I'll post the entirety of this interview, which goes for about 40 minutes, to Accent of Women's Facebook page. But that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. This week's program was produced in my study at home with the incredible support of 3CR staff. I want to extend a very big thank you to them for ensuring that this program is still able to be heard right across the country. Accent of Women receives financial assistance from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week. Yeah,